0: Many times we feel paralyzed by fear and body hatred. In order to feel better about ourselves and live the life we really want to manifest, we have to own up to our difficult feelings and self-sabotaging thoughts and behaviors. We all enter this world naked, and now it's time to feel good naked no matter what your body size or your life circumstances. This is Feel Good Naked Radio, and your host is Lar Redmond. On this program, Lar will help you become more embodied, self-empowered, and mindful to take charge of whom you really are and to live the life you deserve to live. Now, here's your host, Lar Redmond.
1: Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Feel Good Naked Radio. I'm very, very excited today today. My guest is Danny Shapiro, the best-selling author of the memoirs Hourglass, Still Writing, Devotion, and Slow Motion, and five novels, including Black and White and Family History. Her stories and essays have appeared in many publications, including The New Yorker, Granta, Elle, Vogue, the New York Times Book Review, the op-ed pages of the New York Times, and the Los Angeles Times. She read an excerpt of her memoir, Slow Motion, for This American Life, and has been Oprah Winfrey's guest on Super Soul Sunday. Danny has taught in the writing programs at Columbia, NYU, the New School, and Westland University. She currently teaches at retreats and private workshops internationally. She is co-founder of the Sirenland Writers Conference in Positano, Italy. Danny lives with her family in Litchfield County, Connecticut. Welcome to the show, Danny. Thanks, Laura. It's great to be with you. It's so neat to reconnect and just reading Hourglass for the second time. I was so deeply affected by this memoir that is now just out on it's in paperback form for people to get easily. Is that correct?
2: Yeah, it just came out in paperback uh, just a few weeks ago.
1: I thought so. And I read it again for the second time after watching The Royal Wedding. And I wondered if you watched The Royal Wedding.
2: I did. I did. I I think like so many people, (laughs) I was, I tuned in and then I was kind of, surprised by how incredibly moving I found it and I couldn't I was really and you know so kind of extraordinary and beautiful and hopeful in so many ways so yeah oh that's so interesting that you reread hourglass after 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 that after that wedding
1: well it was interesting to watch such beauty and youth and the redemptive power of love stuck with me for days and days afterwards as have the visuals. And then to reread Hourglass and have such an intimate view into a marriage after 18 years, it was this wonderful way to sort of think of the story and the meaning of marriage and how different that can be in the beginning versus 18 years in.
2: Yeah, no, it, I, early on when, when Hourglass first came out in hardcover, Somebody said to me, "It should be a book that every mother gives, every mother of the bride gives to her daughter <laughs> uh, on the eve of her wedding." And I was so interested in that because I, you know, when I was writing it, I don't, I don't tend to think very much about who my reader is going to be when I'm when I'm writing a book. I really try to kind of stay in the dark about that. But I, I, I was aware that I was writing about time and midlife and. Um, and, and, you know, long, long-term marriage. Um, but I think the, the feeling of, I've had young couples say to me that it almost feels like it's kind of a window into the future for them, uh, and like an education in some way, or a little bit of a, of a, a glimpse into what, what might be down the road. And, and I love that because I was very aware, this I was aware of as I was writing it, that I was writing a grown-up love story, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, it it absolutely is a love, sto- love story at its core, but it it's not without its challenges and you know moments of of you know like roadblocks and confusion and and disappointment and anger and you know just all of it. And I, I wanted to write about what it is to walk down the road with another human being for a long ways. And um, yeah, so definitely, definitely bookended with or or preceded by that completely, utterly hopeful and, mm-hmm. and in many ways, um, necessarily naive moment of that, of, 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 of the vow taking and the walking down the aisle. But, you know, I, as, as I imagine you're thinking about it as I'm saying this, I mean, it's just, it's, it's occurring to me that when I, one of the things that happened early, early on in, in the book and early on in the writing is that we were cleaning out our house and my husband found in his office, um, these notebooks that turned out to be, one of them was a journal that I had kept on our honeymoon. And I had no recollection of having kept a journal on our honeymoon at all. If you had asked me if I'd done so, I would have said, no, I don't think I did. But the tone, you know, so when I started rereading these journals, which were almost more like a log, it was like, Mm -hmm. A list of what we did and where we went and what we ate and, you know, what we bought and what the weather was like and what the towels were like and what the beds were like in the hotel. And Mm -hmm. it was really kind of almost more of a list. But within the list and the log, there was um, so much of that, like, young bride just starting out. And I was very aware of that.
1: Yeah, the texture had so much hope and innocence. And at the same time, because you had been married before, there was a knowledge that there was a seriousness in the decision to go there again. And you yeah. felt so much of your, your journey through the way you write is so intimate and special. And for women, I, I want to thank you because I feel like the way you write is a permission to feel the um, complete emotional rainbow without shame. There's a permission, there's an understanding that we all go through this and that that emotional alchemy is okay and present in all forms and ways. And to read that is very affirming if you're in a position of struggle or shame or guilt or fear. And I just love the way you write and I think the subject that fascinates me more than any other is marriage. And I think that's true for so many women.
2: Well, yeah, and thank you for that. That's a that's a really beautiful compliment, um, and and very touching to me, because, you know, the shame, which is something that so many of us, everyone, I mean, I think everyone with a pulse, deals with, you know, sh- feelings of shame in some way, and to, um, to be given permission or to find, to find one's own permission to to, to, to no longer feel shame, to kind of understand that you know, this is part of the human experience is such a liber- liberating, liberating thing. You know, you're, you're, last night I was at a, um, at a, at a gala dinner in New York city for a literary organization that I belong to. And at the table that I was seated, a woman was seated next to me. And it turned out that she had been a colleague of, uh, my second husband. Um, So I was, I was married twice before I married my husband, who I've now been married to for actually 21 years. But so here was this, this woman who I hardly remember, but she, she was a colleague of, of my second husband's and we were catching up for a moment. And, um, and I, I said to her, I, you know, he's gone on and had a, has a lovely life and has another wife. He married a, a woman who has, who was divorced and had two young kids. And I was aware when I heard he had remarried and he married a woman who was divorced with two young kids, that he never would have done that if it had not been for the, you know, the demise of our marriage, you know, that, mm-hmm. that he never, he just wouldn't have. He was somebody who needed everything to be kind of perfect and look perfect and buy the book. And I said to her, you know, I remember his turning to me at one point very early in our very, very brief marriage and saying to me, I've never made a mistake in my life. And I thought to myself, you're looking at her. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. And you know, and I said that to this woman and she looked at me with such shock and sort of dismay. And I was like, no, 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 it's good. <laughs> I, I've i become someone who very easily shares something like that because to me, it just feels like that is permission to just say that's, you know, it, it didn't feel like a, a big, scary, shameful thing that I was saying that it felt like, no, no, no in the fullness of time and in the fullness of life, his path was altered by me and my path went on in a different way. And um, I think we we can tend to put so much weight on these things that are quote unquote mistakes or, and I also think that we're we're all fascinated by marriage because it's something that we don't tend to talk about. Um, You know, books, memoirs that are about marriages are, are, almost entirely about divorces, or about affairs, or, you know, about the crash and burn of a marriage. And I was interested in writing about the longevity of a marriage. And, you know, there's that beautiful Wendell, Wendell Berry phrase that I quote, in Hourglass, which is he he talks about the troubles of duration. And I just remember when I first read those words, just thinking, yeah, I want to write about that. I want to think about that. And I also want to think about the beauty of duration.
1: Well, you know, it's funny because when I first read Hourglass, I was aware that rarely does one get to read about a union that is still moving forward and together. It is usually the lessons learned after the fact. And I think other than Hourglass, my favorite book about marriage, although it is focused around the divorce and the affair, would be Sharon Old's Stag's Leap. Mm -hmm. Which is it's poetry, but it is it is Mm -hmm. some of the most honest wording and phrasing around the idea of a long-term marriage that doesn't last. The long the long term does not make it, but it lasted a long time, and they had children, and she describes it very bravely. Yeah, And I, I think there's something to say as a divorced woman and, and having been married 18 years. I thought about that number in your book both with, with the reference to being in love for 18 months and then your marriage of 18 years at the point that the book was written. But one thing I've really realized, because we raise two children together, and often when you don't make it and you hear the referral of it didn't work or it ended, In divorce. There's such lessons to be learned throughout the whole process, which reminds me of what you're saying about your second husband, which is to say you learn even after you're no longer sharing a home or a legal marriage, but you're still mated through this process of separateness, which is its own beautiful experience and should not be considered failure.
2: Absolutely. No, that's that's so true. And also, it didn't work doesn't mean that it that it never worked. It yeah. worked. It worked until it didn't work. <clears throat>
1: yeah, exactly.
2: Something about the you know idea of it being a failure or uh, it, you know not working in some way that that disavows or 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 takes away from uh, and and kind of glosses over like it, it 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 attempts to sort of rewrite the history of um, of of the parts that were that were. Good and real, and and um, and that and that built something that ultimately then crumbled, but it still built something.
1: Oh yes, and and that's the the grace and the decision not to stay married is to realize how much it did build and how much it did prepare one for the next time in life, the next chapter. But I would love the language to change around that, especially for the children that are those. That are from a divorced family I think there's great editing that could be done to rephrase the way it's spoken about
2: oh for sure I mean just the phrase a broken home is a, it is a, is a terrible phrase
1: yes yeah. it's almost as challenging as blended family <laughs> I think that one's a little challenging as well that blended word is misleading yep. I'm curious in the time you've spent with promotions around hourglass and talking to so many women What are the things that have surprised you about the book tour and the discussions that you've had around the book? Mm. Well,
2: first of all, I mean, just the, just the hunger for the dialogue, um, the, the desire to be in community and talking about these things that are, um, so private, you know, I, in my writing life, I never really, I, I didn't set out to do this, um, But I have written a couple of books that are about things that people are afraid to talk about. I mean, my memoir, Devotion, is about spiritual life and sort of existential crisis and a a struggle to uh, come to understand something about what I believe. And when that book came out, also, there was such hunger to talk about um, faith and spiritual life and the, you know, faith and doubt, all of that. Um, because it's something that, you know, people don't get together over coffee or over dinner and say, so how's your spiritual life going? <laughs> or, you know, and they also don't get together over coffee or over dinner and say, how's, how's your marriage? How's, how's, how's that, how's that happening? Usually it only gets talked about when it's in crisis. Um, and I mean, even among close friends and, I mean, so I, th- I think women talk about their ma- very close women friends will talk about their marriages to each other more certainly more than men will, if I can generalize. Men don't at all. I mean, if a man is talking about his marriage with a buddy, that that marriage is like doomed. It's it's <laughs> by, by that by that time because men just don't do that as a rule, um, and and women do. But but it's I think the the feeling of um, Wanting, wanting, wanting to talk about what, what shapes a sustained relationship over time. You know, what, um, I, I, I'm, I'm, I was in Detroit the other day giving a talk to um, a, a literary organization and there were a thousand people there, mostly older. And the person emceeing it, when he got up to introduce me to the room, said, how many people here have been married 20 years, you know, and more than 20 years, and you a know, huge slew of hands went up, and he said, how about 30 years, and significant number of hands went up, 40 years, still significant, all the way through to 60 years, and there were, huh? it was amazing, I loved, I loved that moment, I wish, I wish I had somehow captured it, it was so beautiful, um, yeah. but so many of the people, and there were, there were probably, forty forty people in that room who, who were you know elderly but who, who had been married more than sixty years and and you know what, what people I think really wanted to talk about um, and when they came up to me afterwards when I was signing books um, were some of the ideas inside of hourglass um, about i mean one of, one of the one of the things that I came to because when I write a book it's an, for me it's an inquiry i it's not like I know. I, I know these things, and now I'm going to write a book about them. That wouldn't interest me at all. Um, my feeling much more is I want to explore this. What am I going to learn? What am I going to discover? Um, and one of the things that I discovered is er- early on in Hourglass, there's a moment where a woodpecker has been kind of uh, doing some damage uh, in, our, in our house, pecking away at the siding. And my husband at one point turns to me and says, I'll take care of it. And as soon as I wrote those words, I thought, what does that mean to me? I love I love when he says that. I love when he says, I'll take care of it. Um, and, it and it becomes a, a, a refrain in our marriage and something I write in the book, something that I love and I long to believe. Um, and so it, it becomes this leitmotif or this refrain throughout the book, but I didn't understand why. I just noticed that it was punctuating. There would be these moments where he would say to me, I'll take care of it. And then there was a moment pretty far along into the writing of the book and in the book itself where one night he was sleeping and I was wide awake and we were stressed out as a couple about something i think something work related worrying about finances and just you know i was wide awake and i and i looked over at him as he was sleeping and i thought to myself i thought to him i'll take care of it and it yeah. was this amazing moment because yeah. i I understood in that moment, first of all, I understood the shape of my book. So selfishly, that was thrilling. Um, I also understood, more importantly, something about the shape of our marriage. And also I felt the shape of marriage is that if two people can't bat that back and forth between them, like this slow game of catch over the course of decades, Um, I, I, I gave, I gave the book when it first was in galleys to a friend of mine who's in her eighties, who's been married for more than 60 years. And I wanted to give it to her because I realized that in the grand scheme of things, 18 years, I mean, it's a significant amount of time, but compared to a lot of, a lot of other people's marriages, not that much. And, and I wondered how she would feel about that and whether she would just think that I, was a pipsqueak. I should check in again in another couple of decades. And, um, and she read the book and that was exact, she loved it. And that was exactly the, what she pinpointed as one of the things that she found to be wise was that move back and forth between two people saying, I can carry us for a while. You know, mm. I can carry us. And she called it a hot potato. I loved that. She's like, oh, a yeah, potato that you keep on just throwing back to the other person, going like, okay, you catch. Here you go. I can't do this now.
1: And they show up in the moment that they catch it. That is so important. Yeah. In fact, if
2: they don't if they don't, that's where things go awry.
1: Yes, yes. Very fast. And and it's interesting because you mentioned this is a gift to a future bride. And I thought, what a great gift for a future groom.
2: Hmm. You know, men have really, men have really responded to this book and couples have read it together as well, which I love. Um, And I've had like many situations where people have wanted me to sign it to both people in a couple. So it's something that they, that they read and think about together. But yeah, no, it's, 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 I mean, on the one hand, these are all things that everyone has to learn for themselves, but I think you know, I love when I give a reading from this book and I see, it's happened a bunch of times recently, I'll see a couple in the audience and they're holding hands and mm. they clearly already read the book, you know, and they're there because they feel like it's, it's uh, illuminated something for them or helped them, which is, you know, I, it's, it's funny, Laura, like I, I've written a few books now that it turns out have helped people. I oh, never, yeah. I never set out to do that. I write to figure things out for myself, um, to help myself in some way, to try to understand. Some, like I, I don't think that if I had set out to help people um, that I would have been able to accomplish what I did. I think it, it came from a much, um, I don't know if I want to say purer, but a place where it was very singularly about my own, like my inquiry into my own experience with the awareness that I was hoping that that would be universal and would land with people.
1: Well, that is exactly what happens when I read your work. It's almost as though I'm part of a deeper listening. It's as if you have a, a deeper listening that you have dared to do, and that is what comes through in the writing. And that's exactly what I feel when I read your work, is that where you're going into the idea of inquiry, I'm actually exploring. And then I'm able to get to your inquiry through my own exploration, which is quite spiritual in the way that you are so gifted as a writer.
2: Mm. Well, I love hearing that. Um, I mean, it, it comes so much from um, turning to that place of specificity. And I think that that goes back to the idea of permission as well, because in order to, to write in a, really, in a really specific way about one's own, um, like mining the vein of one's own intimate experience, uh, one has to be able to, 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 well, to, give, to give oneself permission to do that, but also to feel in some way, and I guess this has been one of the great gifts of my writing life, over time, believing that, um, in, in a way, believing in my own inner life, like not feeling that it's so unique or different from other people's. Um, that, if, that if I capture my own internal life, that is going to be the thing that resonates with others, you know, that doesn't separate me from others, but, but that brings me and others closer that connects us
1: and i was curious in that process for you if you would say that your writing gives you emotional agility or if you have an emotional agility that is just intuitive to your being that you're able to write about or are they connected
2: say a little bit more about what you mean by emotional agility
1: Well, I think that what you uncover, the way you write, you feel as though I I get this feeling almost like you're discovering something emotionally as you write it Mm -hmm. and then you're sharing what you uncover and the uncovering is such a treat to be in on Mm. when you uncover that. Is that something that you feel exists within a deep listening within yourself that you have uncovered through the writing or that the writing leads you to that?
2: Um, both. I have, I have no other tool than, uh, like the, the, like following the line of words for my own, my, my, my own excavation, um, into, into, into that place where I hit upon something that, that feels, you know, deep and important and true, or that's a kind of revelation to me. I have no other way. I don't, again, if I, if I started with the revelation, why would I write it? I say to my students all the time, if you know what happened, why tell the story? Um, it's, it's, it. I think there's a misunderstanding sometimes among readers of, 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 thinking that a writer is someone who has a story that that's like fully formed and ready to tell, and then they set it down on paper. Um, there may be writers who do that, but for me, that would bore me, and I don't, I don't know why. I mean, to, the 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 satisfaction and the excitement is in the discovery, but there's. A couple of layers to that there is there is the discovery and then there is the shaping of the discovery so that like the the, the discovery itself um is a, is kind of wordless and inchoate and it becomes something that's transmittable through finding the language for it
1: I want to read this part of your book, this is from Hourglass, and you write, our recollections alter as we attempt to gather them, even retrospect is mutable, perspective a momentary figment of consciousness, memoir freezes a moment like an insect trapped in amber, me now, me then, this woman, that girl, it all keeps changing, and so... If retrospect is an illusion, then why not attempt to tell the story as I'm inside of it, which is to say, before the story has become a story. Mm-hmm. That's, <laughs> I mean, that is so beautifully said and difficult to explain. <laughs> you know, I mean, that is such a wonderful way to reflect on the distance you also speak about as you shed and shed and shed, and then as the layers shed whatever that perspective becomes is going to be different than it might have been before.
2: Right, well, I mean, that, it's interesting that you chose that passage to read because that is, in a way, I mean, if I were to pick out one passage that, that could be called like a thesis statement for the whole book, <laughs> it probably would be that one um, because I was attempting to do something in hourglass that I, I didn't know if it was possible, I didn't know if it was doable, Uh, I I certainly didn't know if it was possible or doable for me to really be able to tell the story from the absolute present of it, from inside of it. Um, I wanted to collapse and expand time. I wanted to try to tell, I mean, somebody described it, and it's funny because I didn't have the title Hourglass until I had finished the book, but somebody described it as, it was as if I was pinching the middle of the hourglass and trying to just stop time for a second. Um, and, or, or, you know, sort of be in that place that, you know, in, in media rests. And, um, I, I certainly wasn't conscious of that in terms of, um, picking up, in terms of, of arriving at the title and had a totally different working title while I was working on the book. But that, that feeling of, Not writing from distance, not writing from perspective, um, but and or, you know, from that place of narrative, um, you know, a narrative stance, but really writing from the moment. It felt closer. It's interesting that you brought up the Sharon Old because it felt closer to poetry uh, to me than to certainly to narrative prose. Um, I wasn't sure it would work. It felt like a high wire act as I was writing it. Um, but I was, I was very conscious of that moment, trying to capture that moment before the story becomes a story, because in a way, what happens to all of us in, 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 in terms of the way that our memory works and the way that we kind of walk through time is that we connect to stories, uh, our stories, our now, our narratives, and they become kind of the, um, the, the the they become the narratives that we hang our lives on, or we hang our identities on. And the the problem with that is that they keep changing. That and our memories continue to shift and to change. Um, we you can't remember the same thing twice in the same way. Our memories actually change in in the, in their reremembering and the retelling. So. So, you know, what does that say about the nature of consciousness and reality and, and, um, and, and how we, you know, how we, how we construct the world around us? I wanted to try to not construct it. Um, and yet at the same time, I wanted to make a book out of it that felt constructed because that's ultimately when people say to me, I started reading hourglass and I couldn't put it down and I read it in two hours and I couldn't stop reading. Well, there's no, there's no narrative momentum in this book you know, people aren't reading it to find out what happens. Nothing happens. It, 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 begi- it ends where it begins. I mean, I, when I was first on book tour, I would say to people, there is no plot in this book. Um, mm-hmm. The closest thing to a plot is moving from I'll take care of it to I'll take care of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet at the same time, it ends up, I guess, feeling like it does have narrative momentum for people, because it's emotional momentum. And I think that's, What interests me as a reader, the books that I love these days, uh, and actually very early in my writing life, this was true too, but I think I've come back around to it in a more minimalist way, are books where um, I am inhabiting a consciousness. I'm so much more interested in inhabiting a consciousness than being entertained by a story.
1: Yeah. I couldn't agree more. What are you reading right now? What are you enjoying and getting a lot out of? Hmm. There are a number of books I've really
2: enjoyed lately. I I loved um, Mohsin Hamid's Exit West, uh, which is a novel, which is a really gorgeous novel that kind of moves into a slightly magic, realistic kind of place, uh, which was very surprising to me. And yet at the same time, like it's a book that changes the dance steps about a third of the way through, but you completely go with it because in a way it had been, set up by the reader, but it's a beautiful book about, um, about, about love, about a dystopian society, about, um, family. It's really unusual. Um, I'm actually right now late to the party, but reading, uh, Ward's, uh, salvage the bones, um, Mm -hmm. which is magnificent, uh, on the level of language, just staggering. She is incredibly gifted. Um, and then I dip, I dip in and out of other things. I, um, there's a book by um, a neuroscientist named David Eagleman called "Sum," S-U-M. Uh, that is, uh, that are these these little stories that are imaginings of what happens when we die. Um, that are just so wonderful and, and you know charming and human and interesting. And then I read, um, you know, dipping in and out of various um, books of you know sort of wisdom. I go back to Thomas Merton. I read Virginia Woolf a lot. Um, yeah, I just, I, I move around. I actually I just finished a book that just recently came out called How to Write an Autobiographical Novel. And mm. it's essays by uh, a writer named Alexander Chi And it's, it's terrific. Um, just really, really strong, powerful, interesting essays about identity and literature and writing.
1: And do you have the summer, this beautiful time to reflect and read and not have to appear and go on the road, or do you have only a short pause? You know, I, I, I've been
2: thinking a lot about this lately, as, as I think do many, you know, working writers that I know. It's, it's more and more difficult to carve out, you know, and even the, the idea that one has to carve it out, but to carve out time that really is kind of uninterrupted and uninterruptible because, you know, in the olden days, if a writer had a, a successful publication, there might be a book tour. It might last a week or two or three, and then it'd be over and you'd be done and you'd be back at your desk. And that is not the way it works anymore. It's just not the nature of the world or of being a writer in the world. So one could continue to be on the road all the time. So what, what ends up having to happen is that, you know, I've learned that I have to become very conscious of my time in ways that are difficult because if somebody invites me to do something a year from now, a year from now sounds like a really long time. Surely I'll want to do it a year from now. Um, and it's an interesting invitation and I'll, You know, I've I've learned that I need to pause, really pause and think, wait a minute, this is a block of uninterrupted time. Do I want to commit myself to being in New York on that day or in L.A. or wherever? Um, And and it's hard because some of these things are wonderful and they're interesting and you meet really interesting people. So I guess that's a long winded way of saying um, I have I have a summer that. Has a, a little bit of teaching here and there, a few a few places where I'm teaching for a few days, uh, here and there. Other than that, not much traveling um, for for my book. Um, I do. I did just finish a new book, which um, no one is more shocked by than I than I am. Um, but I, when I when I uh, when I finished Hourglass, uh, just really a couple of weeks after I finished Hourglass. I just inadvertently, completely by accident, uh, stumbled upon a huge family secret, huge. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I'm very, very grateful for the timing because had I, had, I, had I stumbled upon it three months earlier, I might never have finished Hourglass because it was, <sighs> it was so out of left field and, and, and massive and hard to metabolize and it would have been very difficult it would have been impossible, I think, to have stayed with that delicate little, you know, gossamer book that I was constructing. But that's not what happened. I finished Hourglass and I put the finishing touches on it. And then this, this huge secret that I can't, I can't really talk about yet, but, um, but it was uncovered. And I immediately started writing because writing is how I process things. Writing is how I, begin to come to make sense of things. And also because the nature of this particular story was such that there were people who, if I was going to get to the bottom of this, they were very old and might not be alive much longer. And so I needed to like, just get on it. So, so I wrote this book, it's called inheritance and it's coming out actually much sooner than uh, anyone could possibly anticipate it's going to come out in January which is wow in publishing terms you know in publishing yes and nanosecond but um off my publisher really felt like they wanted to bring it out soon and um and I'm thrilled about that but so I have a lot to do to prepare for that publication um and yeah so I'm not sure exactly how much real uh real downtime I'm gonna have but what I've what I've come to learn or what I'm coming to learn uh, how to do is to um, you know I've, I have a, a wonderful friend Gabby Bernstein, the uh, Gabrielle Bernstein, and she many of your listeners probably know she is. She's a great writer and motivational speaker and um, healer, really magical person. And when she goes out on the road, she's talking to thousands and thousands and thousands of people um, and putting out a huge amount of energy. And when she's home, she's like in her pajamas and her socks and her, you know, cooking and her hiking, taking walks. And and she once said to me, when I'm, when, I'm, when I'm in deep, I'm in deep. And when I'm out, I'm out. But like in order to be able to go out, I have to go deeply in. And Absolutely. I've learned a lot from that. And that's like, to me, that's the balance of my life. Like I, I meditate every morning. If I didn't do that, I actually don't think that I... To do a lot of what I do, it's like it's like hitting a reset. Um, it's a it's a it's a you know just the sacredness of that and and just tuning in, like tuning into my body, tuning into my psyche, tuning into like, am I burning out? Like, let's pay attention to what's going on. And if I really, really do that, then I can actually do a lot more, um, you know, out there in the world in terms of traveling or speaking then I would think I would be able to, and I can do it without feeling sapped. I can do it being energized by it, not feeling like my energy is being pulled from me.
1: That is such a good tip for the listeners who feel overwhelmed, which I often hear. Many people do. And one tool that I think is also very powerful is to frame the day within a 24-hour frame as you meditate first thing in the morning. So you're not allowing all of the future things or the demands that are coming up in the next month or six months, for that matter, to be what you are occupied with in your thoughts, but to stay with the day just 24 hours, what's on your plate today. And that can take down that overwhelm, I find, very effectively.
2: Lately, uh, this meditation that I've been doing lately, I actually don't usually do guided meditations, but I've been doing one by this... um, a uh, meditation teacher named uh, Jonathan Lehman that's on my the app that I use is Insight Timer which I love and he has this meditation where at one point he quotes Eckhart Tolle and the quote is some, I'm butchering it but it's something to the effect of you know to master being human is to exist in the space between being and becoming mm-hmm. and I find that so liberating and also um, soothing because it's because it's true because that's all we can ever do is i mean if, if we're discerning and aware of it is be in that space between being and becoming and and being is about being and absolutely being in the present moment um but also becoming is is what's happening all the time from that place of being
1: yes yes how long are you meditating typically in the morning? Twenty minutes. Yeah, it's a game changer.
2: It really is. It really is. And and I never. I used. I mean, I've had a meditation practice for a while, but I never could get into the first thing in the morning thing. And for the past six six or eight months, that's been my sort of sacred practice wherever I am. Uh, and I mean, I'll like make myself a cup of coffee and splash some cold water on my face. But then I sit down, and and. And I don't check anything online, no email, no politics, no state of the world, uh, nothing that's come in overnight until I'm done.
1: That's and, a must. Yeah.
2: It really is because otherwise then your mind starts to fill up with all that clutter and, and all that clutter is, uh, we have enough of it.
1: Yeah. 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 Right. It- Danny, you spoke a moment ago you of the words faith and doubt, and with the spirit of our conversation being about the redemptive power of love, I would love to know what your thoughts are about faith and doubt as you sit with self today. Mm.
2: Well, I, I go I go to to uh, you know the, the the teachings and the writings of Thomas Merton regarding that because when I was first really grappling with this. I, I was I was raised in a very religious home, um, observant Jewish home, and there was no doubt wasn't part of the equation. You know, doubt wasn't really permissible. It was just um, it was just religion, and 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 and, and sometimes rote religion. You know, just this is what we do. Why? Because we do it. You know, why do we do it? Because our fathers and our fathers' fathers and our fathers' fathers' fathers did it before us, and so this is what we do. And, you know, by the time I was a teenager, I felt really disconnected from that, even though I adored my father, who was of my two parents, the one who was religious. I really, I just couldn't get behind it. I didn't feel it. And and what I didn't know, I mean, Paul Tillich uh, once wrote, um, Doubt. faith is not, faith is not the absence of doubt, you know, there, I believe it was Tillich who said that, you know, that, that doubt is an element of faith, I didn't know that, and so the idea of grappling with faith, grappling with the idea of God, you know, have, you know, Merton has these beautiful, like, sort of dialogues, or, you know, one-way dialogues with, with God, you know, where he, 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 he asks him about his existence, he, 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 kind of contends with and wrestles with his own doubt. And I guess at this point in my life, I find that really beautiful. And, 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 actually also because of my memoir devotion, I came to know a lot of spiritual leaders because a lot of different faiths embraced that book and people, you know, would have me come in and talk. So I met, met many, many, you know, ministers and, um, and and buddhist teachers and and rabbis and at one point i was asked to speak at a conference of all of the reformed female rabbis in america a couple Mm. hundred female rabbis and oh i was so honored and so excited and one of the things that i discovered over the course of that weekend was that these women were very very hungry for each other's company because they were really lonely and the reason why they were lonely because they felt like they essentially had to toe the party line with their con- with their congregants and not display any doubt um, and not question anything, um, but be the voice of um, certainty. And none of them were certain because to be a spiritual person is to not be certain. Um, it's 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 a it's a very, very it's such a very fluid thing and. Um, I remember being at a synagogue in Los Angeles, uh, doing an event there, and the uh, the rabbi was was a conservative synagogue, so a little bit more strict. And the rabbi was a woman, and she was the only woman in the United States at that time to have her own congregation in a large metropolitan area um, of Los Angeles, Beverly Hills, actually. And her name is Rabbi Laura Geller, and and. We were, we were conversing, and at one point she was speaking, and I was looking out at this audience, fairly large audience, that was clearly comprised of a lot of her congregants. And Laura said the phrase, the God of our childhoods fails us. Mm-hmm. And I watched the faces of the people in that audience, and they looked so relieved that their rabbi or, you know, a, spiritual leader would say such a thing, you know, the God of our childhoods the you know, the man in the sky with the white beard, he fails us because bad things happen. And, you know, how do we reconcile, you know, the, you know, the, the wars and the famines and the, and the murders and the, you know, the, the, the things that befall people with the idea that there is like this personal God who, you know, keeps us from getting parking tickets. And, mm-hmm. And I, it was so m- moving to me um, that she felt she was able to say that. Yeah, and and the relief that people felt from that.
1: Oh yeah, that's a wonderful way to get rid of the guilt that <laughs> can so often accompany that teaching and absolutism that is given to a child normally about spirituality which is why I'm always so intrigued by Krista Tippett asking the question of spiritual influence as a child, because it takes such a large piece of real estate until it doesn't. Well, I
2: I love that she begins those interviews in that way. And, but, you know, I've been thinking lately as I meditate in the mornings, because I, I have some rituals and I, I, I travel with them. I have some essential oils that was given to me by, they were given to me by a very dear friend who's a, who's a yoga teacher and I have some crystals and a little traveling you know to call it an altar is a bit grand. Um, but you know it's like a little tin filled with crystals. and I arrange them in a particular way and I use the essential oils and I set myself up. and that is a ritual. And mm-hmm. I think that I, I grew up in a child in, 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 in a world as a child, that was filled with ritual and the ritual itself, the idea of ritual as a gateway stayed with me. It just isn't, you know, it isn't, it isn't the exact same, you know, rituals of my childhood. They're different rituals.
1: Well, and I do believe that that's self-love. I mean, you know, the the idea that a ritual is self-care and self-love and can be, created wherever you are, I think is a wonderful thing to put into everyone's lives because it's so affirming and positive and helpful. Yeah. So
2: everyone has to come to it in their own way. And I think the, the, again, to go all circle all the way back to the idea of permission to find one's own rituals, the ones that really resonate when I first was starting out like sort of on that journey i thought well that's not okay you can't just choose your own rituals you got the rituals you were born into and you just got to deal with those and that's not something that i feel anymore at all
1: no thank you for that and thank you for this time i can't believe how fast it went and how much I've loved checking in with you after our paths briefly crossed in the eighties and the road Yeah, it's such a treat to just check in with you and hear your voice and to remember that time and to be able to feel the time of now with you. It's just a real honor. Thank you so much, Danny.
2: So enjoy talking with you, Laura.
1: And the listeners can find you Instagram, Facebook, what is your social media diet? It's-
2: instagram i'm danny writer d-a-n-i-w-r-i-t-e-r and facebook just by my name and my website is just uh dannyshapiro.com thank you bye
1: thanks Thanks.
2: bye
0: thank you for listening to feel good naked radio with Laura redmond please join us again for new shows every month on the voice america variety channel until our next show be you and feel great in your own skin.